Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. We interview people in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our clients, patients, and athletes to move more, move better, and move more efficiently. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge and information to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, our goal is to promote movement as a lifestyle and to interview people to tell their story so amateur aficionados and professionals can learn that it's not just one way to skin the cat, one way to do things. One of the ways that I find guests is people I know are through recommendations. And a lot of times when you go to a conference, for those of you who've been to conferences, you recognize that that's the opportunity to meet people. That's the opportunity to learn and to socialize and to network. When I was at the NSCA conference this year, talking to somebody about a project that he invited me to be involved with, I realized that this is somebody who would be a perfect guest because he has been in the field for a I think I can say a very long time and I won't hurt his feelings. I actually, we were chatting before we started the recording. We actually met, I believe, in 2001 or 2002. And huge kudos to him because he actually remembered the time frame of where we were when we met. Today, we have the opportunity to interview Roger Earl. For those of you who are in the movement field and you read human kinetics journals or books, he is an acquisitions editor. And if you've been in the field for say, eight or nine years or less, that's probably what you know him as. If you're a little bit longer as an NSCA member, or other than that, you probably recognize him as a former employee of the NSCA, formerly involved with the Certification Commission when that was a separate thing. And I think he has a very interesting story. And one of the great things for me about doing these podcasts is you always learn something about somebody. I did not know that in his private life, Roger wears a cape as a obstacle course athlete. And I'm sure that'll come up too. So Roger, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on Moving to Live and talk about your path. Thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate that. I know one of the things that I always ask guests that I have on Moving to Live, and it's kind of my favorite thing. You're at a conference, you're in the elevator, and you know how long those elevators can take when everybody's going up to the room and they happen mm -hmm. to see you with a, a logo on for your shirt or something. And they say, so what do you do? What is your not really elevator spiel, but when people say professionally, so Roger, what do you do? What's your response? Wow. Um, those elevator moments can be interesting, especially at conference, right? Um, I suppose I usually end up saying, well, my day job is um, that I work for Human Kinetics, which is the world's largest publisher for sport and exercise books. That's the shortest description. So, of course, then they ask you, like, well, what do you do at HK? human kinetics. And so my job is in acquisitions. Um, I work for the trade and professional division. So um, books, uh, courses, um, products that help people either prepare for uh, some sort of professional certification or um, continue education, if you are currently certified, or, or resources that you might need if you're a practicing professional. So that's the professional side. And a few of my books are on the consumer side, th things that a person would buy for his or her own, own exercise programming, but typically for the professional. And my subject areas are in strength training, conditioning, and personal training. That's quite a mouthful. Yeah, and that's the day job side. I've, I do, uh, I've been doing personal training since I just told someone today, like my, I started personal training as soon as I turned 18. And of course, they did math for how old I am versus how long I've been doing it. And that's something that uh, is a lifelong 
a passion of mine because if there's one thing I've learned is that every person is very unique. Every person has their own story. Every person has their own path to fitness, path to movement. I'm sure you've noticed that as you've interviewed people. Uh, no two people have the same goals, desires, experiences. And that's why personal training for me, whether it be for sport performance or for health, uh, or whatever it might be is very rewarding because you get to come alongside somebody and help them on their journey. And I think that's interesting. I, I think you're the youngest starting personal trainer that I've interviewed on my two podcasts. <laughs> We've done over 250 episodes. Ah. I'm curious, what was the path or how did you start out as a personal trainer? Were you an athlete and somebody said, hey, would you train me? Was there the opportunity for a job at a local health club or YMCA? How did that come about? Well, I don't know how far back you want to go because you wisely asked a pre-podcast question about my path to the movement fitness field. Um, I mean, I was I was uh, the stereotypical 98-pound weakling in grade school and uh, was horribly picked on and uh, during recess. Had enough of that, started to... Uh, do my own exercise program in the basement of my parents' house with those plastic uh, encased pieces of concrete for the weight set. So you and had then, the upscale version, not the version you had to fill with water. Correct. This version was the pink plates, or they were like gold pink plastic around cement with the hollow bars that bent pretty easily. So so that was my uh, my foray in the fitness. And, and thankfully, I... Uh, I didn't know this, but I went through puberty at the same time and and basically in a year's worth of time kind of morphed my whole self at visually and and uh, was very much involved with 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 sport. And I just got to the point that it was part of my life and and I did individual sports um, specifically and solely really. And when I got to the point that I needed to, uh, choose a college major. My uh, my high school advisor was very hands-on, literally hands-on. He's the type of guy that he would like come around to the outside of his desk and use his index finger in your sternum to make points. And, and, and as a junior, he said, you know, you got to decide by next week when we have our meeting what your college major is going to be. And at that point, uh, it wasn't called exercise science yet. It was called sports medicine. So I decided when I was in high school that I wanted to be a sports medicine major in college. And when I went to Creighton University, I decided right then to, to declare my degree, which I found out was not called sports medicine, but actually was called exercise science. And then I was just in the fitness center exercising one day and and these, uh, these two ladies um, came up to me there. I guess they were middle-aged women and they were walking along the track and and, and I was exercising. I don't know what I was doing, working out, exercising, something. And they said, so you look look like you work out. Do you do personal training? And there you go. That, those are my first two clients. They were from England. They provided a whole lot of entertainment and a cultural experience as I worked with them. I learned very quickly that you had to be very careful what you say. Um, when people that you're just meeting, you can't just crack jokes and and uh, all sorts of things, especially when they have international sense of humor. So I didn't even get my jokes in the first place. So that kind of started things off for me. And I've been doing personal training since then. And I think it's interesting at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned uh, your career in personal training, whether it be for health or for sports performance. So many people when they get into, and I'll use, I'll use the term or the major sports medicine and People who are listening who are in the field know it may be called sports medicine, exercise science, kinesiology. If we played uh, you say one, I say one, you could probably come up more than me because of your experience in the publishing field. But so many people, it's like, well, I want to work with elite athletes. You know, if, you, if you're in Nebraska, I want to work with the Nebraska football team. If you're in Pennsylvania, I want to work with the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know. How do you think that... Uh, the fact that your personal training started literally, but literally fell in your lap. You were in the right place at the right time. How do you think it's helped you or hurt you with the personal training that you started out not working with the air quotes elite athletes, but more the general public 
when you transitioned or when you did work with people who were more performance oriented as opposed to health oriented? Well, I think that's an insightful question because typically um, people don't realize that when they make their that type of transition, and that's probably more, there's probably more number of people who do that. There's less number of people who just drop into the pro level or the D1 level right from the start um, that you really get a better sense then about the uniqueness of each individual client because in the higher performance, you know, uh, sport performance environment, you're more working with groups of individuals. And so you basically it's by position, like you're working with this group of athletes and they're all in the same position. So the programming is quite similar unless I have something that the athletic trainer or sports medicine doctor or team physician pointed out that this person needs more attention here or there. But you you get the sense very early on about the uniqueness of a single individual person and his or own his or her own needs and how that shapes programming versus doing the group programming that you'd find at the more elite levels. Unless, of course, you're doing personal training uh, for sport performance for an individual athlete, and that would be even more niche. I know. I, I think it's interesting the way your path went because I started out as an athletic training student and I only yeah. wanted to work with athletes. The idea of working with now that I'm middle-aged, you know, middle-aged people or people with, with back problems, et cetera. It's like, I have no interest in that. And it's interesting as I got older and had those specific problems, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually kind of interesting. So I think whoever's out there listening in the personal training field, don't pigeon yourself into, I work with athletes or I work with older adults or I work with women or I work with men because literally the people that you work with are the people that are going to have the most influence in your career. And I mean, I can still think 25 years back, people that I've worked with who still, I think about things that they said, and I'm sure you're the same way. Yeah. I mean, it's just the more that you have those one-on-one conversations with clients, the more you realize, well, one on how much their upbringing and their environment affects their perspective on exercise and especially nutrition you know, how, you know, what their home environment was, their college environment, or what their current environment is. It's just, those things are so influential. So, you know, just being able to gain a sensitivity to an individual's person's needs, then you can carry that over to more of the larger group, higher level performing athlete or athlete groups, because you already are aware that, yes, you may be working with a group, but yes, you still need to identify and and give attention to each individual person in the group. And I know you and I are part of a really unique and small population, people who treat movement just as the norm. I mean, I imagine from reading the questionnaire you filled out and, and, and knowing you a little bit, you know, you can't imagine not exercising and not moving. You mentioned, you know, you started lifting weights as literally the Charles Atlas 98 pound weakling when you were, you know, prepubescent. And so many people in this world, you know, they say move, exercise. I can't do that. You get to Creighton, you pick exercise science, either because you had a really good uh, guidance counselor who said, hey, you need to pick something. And it seemed to have worked out. A lot of people, they get to school. It's like, okay, I'm going to finish my my undergraduate degree. I'm done. I want to get out and I want to make some money. I know you've got a master's and I know from looking at uh, the questionnaire that I guess you to, to fill out, which I call my cheat sheet, that you started a doctorate and it didn't work out. What was the transition as you're going through your undergraduate to say, you know, I want to get an additional degree. I want to get that master's degree. I want to learn more. Well, the master's degree was, was honestly, it was a, a very simple process because I went, I was at Creighton University as a, instructor for the exercise science department, and then the head strength coach. So in town was the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And so different from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln that people are more aware of. So literally across town, I could go to grad school while I was working full-time plus at Creighton. And it just fit within my schedule. I finished, I just went straight through, finished in a year and a half. Um, so summer schedule worked out just fine and it was able to be fit in amidst everything else I was doing. So it was more by convenience. I knew that, uh, having an undergraduate degree would not be enough 
I needed to, at that time, fewer people had a master's degree or an advanced degree um, in exercise science. Too many people, lots of people just graduated with an undergraduate degree and then worked in the gym, quote unquote, and then were magically offered a job somewhere, who knows where. Um, so to be able to separate myself from that, I knew I needed to have a, a master's degree at least. I chose the MA route versus the MS route because of just time. I didn't uh, have time to do research uh, just because of my my day job, so to speak. So I just did the comps version of taking the test at the end of the graduate school. So for the master's of arts degree. And then I just kind of put my attention back into what I was doing at Creighton. And then I thought, well, I guess I need to go one more level because to, to further distinguish myself amongst others who were doing things that I was doing also. So then I decided to uh, enroll at Arizona State University. And uh, my wife at the time, her family was from Phoenix. So it was a great move to be back where her family was located back in Arizona. And uh, I didn't know that it was a research one university. So I start start school and the first week, you know, in, in doctoral school, they talked about, you know, this, this study, that study, this lab, that lab. And I quickly realized that one, you essentially are living on campus. Two, you have to be independently wealthy to be in grad school and not have a job. And three, if you had uh, a family, you were even more at risk for not being able to handle everything. And that just described me to a T. So a couple of months in grad school and uh, plus the very sobering 53% I got on my, my first sports nutrition test that I took because I didn't put my answers in full sentences. Uh, <laughs> so I was back at being a student after being an instructor for so long and that just didn't uh, work so well. Um, so I just felt I needed to to stop with the ego thing and and realize my limitations, and I uh, withdrew a few months after starting. So that was an experience, but I really felt at the time that I really had no choice because I don't know how someone would be able to have a job and be in PhD school at the same time. I don't know how that's possible. Maybe you should tell me. <laughs> well, my, my 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 first of all, I took out quite a bit of loans. I was I was an athletic training student, and I had pretty much reached the end of where I could go in athletic training mm. unless I wanted to be an administrator. Okay. And you're right with the job aspect. My job aspect was I taught two or three spin classes at a gym in Auburn that was called Kaz Fitness, which was owned by the ex-wife of Bill Kazmaier. Ah, okay. Or anybody in the strength and conditioning field uh, would, would know that would would, would know that name. But I would agree with you uh, as far as it would be very difficult to work. It would be very difficult. I know I have a, had a, have a good friend who had a family who went through with it. And he basically told his two young daughters, we're not going on vacation for four or five years. I'll take you to Disney when I'm done. It's, <laughs> it, 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 it it's very uh, interesting. I'm yeah. also very happy that you mentioned your 53 because my claim to fame, and I say that semi-jokingly because I know so many people have a tendency to take themselves too seriously. I got a 41 on my first cadaver anatomy class in my master's program and quickly realized my study techniques maybe were not suitable for that course. And my study techniques changed entirely. So one grade does not make you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was interesting because um, the class, I mean, sports nutrition was my was my identified specialty in PhD school. So here I am taking a sports nutrition class. And then the instructor was the chair of the department who I interviewed with to be a student there. And uh, she ended up being my mentor. And she ended up being uh, someone who uh, wrote books for human kinetics, who I eventually came back around to seeing years later. So it was quite the between my leg experience for me at the time. So well, when, I, when I was first looking at doctoral studies, I was working in Lexington, Kentucky, and somebody we you and I both know well, Dr. Jeff Chandler, essentially became my mentor. And I remember when I was first interested in it, he said, well, you know, make a list of seven or eight schools that you might be interested in applying for doctoral studies. And he probably doesn't remember this, but I had a number of schools, including Auburn, where I was fortunate enough to earn a degree. And he looked at him, he said, okay, now realistically, which ones of these do you, can you get into? Because 
Some of these, you're going to have master students who are applying, who've already got five or six publications and are experienced in lab in wet labs. And you know, Dr. Chandler, he has a very good way of putting things and making you think and not putting you down. And that list of six or seven or eight schools quickly went down to three or four because I realized some of them were the ones that you were reading the research coming out of it. And realistically, I didn't have a snowball's chance in the world of getting into these schools. And I would have spent the time and effort and money if Jeff had not said, hey, which ones do you realistically have a chance to get into? Fair point, fair point. So I'm curious, bachelor's degree, master's degree, deciding the doctorate didn't work out for the quality of life and having having a, a, good, a good lifestyle. Was the intention to be a college teacher, college professor, or was that kind of, I'm doing this because I have the opportunity, I'm good at it. How, how did that uh, continue to transpire or work out? I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I didn't I realized that I didn't necessarily describe that to you in our in our pre-podcast notes. Um, I will tell you that I loved every single second of teaching uh, undergraduate exercise science courses at Creighton. Um, it was something that I think that Dr. Thomas Beckley, he was the department chair and the person really to mentor me through lots of my career. Um, I think, I think he, I just wore the guy down because I was just like saying to him, like, okay, what, what can I teach? And this was at a time that, um, you didn't have the hurdle of certain education degree or experiential requirements to be able to teach. Um, I was kind of hired as adjunct first. So I think that's kind of the way that that was able to be uh, worked around. So I just kept saying, well, what can I teach? What can I teach? I'll, I'll do sports nutrition. You don't have a sports nutrition class? I'll do sports nutrition. Exercise leadership? You bet. Exercise physiology? Of course. I even did one semester, to be proud of me, one semester of care and prevention of athletic injuries. And I was not an ATC. So I just I made sure I told everybody up front, I'm not an ATC, but I'm going to work through this, uh, the, the typical athletic training book. You probably remember the author. I don't remember offhand. It's the same Arnheim. one. Arnheim. There you go. It's probably in its 54th edition by now. Exactly. Um, so I, I just loved it. I, I I really connected, I think, really well with the students. I saw half the students in the weight room and on the field after class also because they were athletes too. And that was a really great dynamic to be their instructor and their, and their coach, strength coach. Um, it really... Uh, worked out well. It was very much of a one plus one equals three experience relationship wise with those student athletes. And I just remember, uh, I mean, I still remember to this day, the very last day I I, I taught a class uh, before leaving uh, Nebraska to go to Arizona for, for uh, doctoral school. I remember walking in realizing this is the last time I get to do this. I don't know. There was just something about it. And I really took it seriously. And anytime I've had an opportunity to teach or, or give presentations since then, I've always just cherished that because I look at it as an opportunity and a responsibility. And I think that's just there's something to be said for for imparting knowledge to people who are in programming or who are interested and and want to develop their own knowledge base or their own education or their own career. So you decide the doctoral studies aren't for you. You've given up the teaching at Creighton. What's the next step in the career path? And one of the things to, to, I think should be mentioned, as you mentioned, you you really enjoyed the teaching. I think it could be said, as the acquisitions editor, you still teach today. I know I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a number of projects and the emails that come out of you, out from you with the details on them are things that it's like, okay, I'm, I need to get these questions answered. And usually in the introductory emails before you start a writing project for human kinetics, you've already answered the question. So you're still teaching, even though you're not in the classroom. I appreciate that. I think it's, I mean, those sorts of projects, I always look at it from the point of view as, as the recipient of those messages. Like, what would I need to know? And, you know, at what stage and at what level of detail? And, and I also think that it's important to make a good uh, professional impression on the people that you're asking to give their time and expertise on a project because we never they never can get paid what they actually deserve. 
because these are experts in their areas. And so I take that very seriously and, and uh, just look at, uh, look at it as a way of making HK stand out in the way that we work with people and, and how we treat them. And, and uh, correspondingly, everybody's most of the time responds really well to that and and uh, does a good job for HK or for the NSCA. Matter of fact, I probably would say three quarters of the projects I work on for uh, HK are NSCA books. And I, and I know I've said to people before, it's uh, you don't make your money doing projects or things for the NSCA, but when they ask me to do something or if it's through HK, I always say yes, because I wouldn't be where I am today without the opportunities they give it, they've given to me from you the first time you approached me about writing a chapter. I was mentioning to you, Dr. Beckley, who is a longtime member of the NSCA, took me to breakfast once when I was a young master's student, encouraged me to get my doctorate. And it's really these people that you meet along the way that help you. So what was it when you, when you decided, okay, I can't have a normal life and get the doctor degree, which I think is, yeah. that's a sign of maturity because probably if you were six or seven years younger, you would have said, I'm just going to put my head down and beat it against the wall. And you may have gotten out, out of it and you would have been a bitter, uh, a bitter PhD. Uh, yeah. And, and probably alienated more people than I did already along the way. The, the, inter the interesting thing I can say of that is my dad started uh, after college, he started law school and dropped out, realized it wasn't for him. And went back to law school after he retired at 74. So really? he, is, he is in his mid-80s and a part-time public defender for uh, a, a county in, in Indiana. And his comment was, it's like, you know, I want to do something when I'm retired. I don't want to be a greeter at Walmart. I want something that's a little, you know, nothing against that. But I want something that's more, a little more intellectually challenging. So we went to law school at 74. My, my funny story I like to tell this is they were talking about a law case and Professor, it somehow involved ice boxes, not refrigerators, but ice boxes where they put blocks of ice in it. And the professor says, Well, you know, Dan, you probably remember these from when you were a kid. So there's oh, the no. there's always the opportunity after you finish your career and you're you're sitting around and going, Well, you know, I want to do more than weightlifting. Maybe you go back or maybe you maybe you get a, a degree in something else. I, I think one of the interesting things wow. as you've probably seen working with HK is there's numerous ways to educate yourself. It's not just to uh, go to school and get, get the, uh, the expensive uh, certificate or diploma. Not these days. Yeah. Not these days. That's for sure. Well, I mean, that's, that's interesting because, you know, as soon as I had the, what uh, Tom Beckley has affectionately called the come to Jesus moment, when I realized that I was not able to continue in, in PhD school. And um, that was in November. Um, and uh, it was a very short, uh, very short time window. It was March of the following year that uh, Tom Beckley approached me to start working for what was then called the NSCA Certification Commission. And at that time, the NSCA membership um, organization was separate from the NSCA certification part of the organization. There were two separate companies. Uh, at the time, that was a requirement to uh, maintain a certain level of um, uh, accreditation status for its certification exams that the two companies had to have that barrier between certification and education. And so I started with the NSA Certification Commission being in charge of working on exam development. So at the time, the NSCA only had the CSCS and the personal trainer credential. And so my job was to work with the exam development committees to update the exam pool and subsequently the exam itself um, on an annual basis and then work with um, the another group of individuals who were in charge of the content oversight for the exam preparation materials that someone could review and use um, to prepare for a certification exam. Some of you who may, may be listening to this now may remember that back in the day, the study materials for the CSCS exam, um, which was started in 1985, was a photocopy set of three-ring binded hole-punched uh, articles from the journals, NSCA journal, at single NSCA journal at the time. So 
the United States Certification Commission was my first job outside of um, the, the university environment. And that's just started my whole career with the NSCA as an organization. And I was with the NSCA in a variety of different capacities all the way up through 2008. So that was a long tenure of being involved with the association at that particular level, doing those particular things. Like one of the things I find when I interview people for moving to live is sometimes you get a blast from the past. And when you mentioned that, I I have a memory of getting a large manila envelope with those and finding a three ring binder for it. And I think I probably didn't throw all of those articles away until I moved from Florida up to Pennsylvania in the early 2000s. And so I think now thinking back, I kind of wish I've had, I still had those articles because some of them are authored by literally a who's who that uh, I remember that person. I wonder what happened to them. Yeah, good point. And then of course that morphed into having uh, VHS tapes of, of the exercise techniques and then that morphed into DVDs of exercise techniques and and uh, the in-person symposium for exam preparation that were done all across the U.S. at the time. And yeah, it was quite the process, quite the, a lot of um, office editing, very similar to kind of what I do now. But also the other half of the business was working with organizations even eventually internationally to have the exams be translated into other languages and the, and the online materials or the, excuse me, the, the printed materials for preparing for the certification exams also being uh, translated in other languages, the textbook being translated and the symposiums being given worldwide in other languages. So that was kind of a whole process of those 13 years of working on those sorts of aspects of the certification arm of the NSCA. And depending how long people who are listening, if they're NSCA members or they own the various essentials books, they may or may not realize that the first, maybe even the second edition of the Essentials of Strength and Conditioning, you were one of the editors. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, Thomas Beckley was the sole editor for the first edition that was released in 95 or 96, I believe. Actually, it might have been before that. Might have been before that. Um, so I have a, a tagline in there somewhere. I was um, tasked to do kind of like a content review um, along the way. And then the second edition and the third edition of the Essentials of Strength Training and Conditioning text, I was uh, one of the editors with, with Thomas Beckley. And then when the first edition of the NSA's Essentials of Personal Training book came out, uh, that's my sole claim to fame that I got listed first on a book. So I've written a good number of books, but that's the sole one, the full edition that I was listed first. So it was a fun day when that came in the mail. I got to open the box and see that. So it's interesting. I just got a message the other day from Wayne Westcott. Some of you may know Wayne Westcott, um, delightful man, uh, practitioner through the YMCA, um, really an expert in uh, youth uh, resistance training. He and Avery Fagenbaum, Dr. Avery Fagenbaum, have done a lot of work together. Uh, they, as a pair, have written chapters uh, for the NSCA over the years of youth, adult, and older adult, and women. Um, there's chapters on those topics. And so Wayne sent me a message the other day. So, you know, I was going through all my books that I've written, and I don't have a first edition of the NSCA's Essentials of Personal Training. Could you possibly find one? So I went on a scavenger hunt in the building to go see if I can find a first edition of that book. And one of the persons in the production, not production, in the fulfillment department in the warehouse had it on his desk to raise his laptop up, excuse me, the screen up to the proper height. So he said, is this the book you're looking for? And of course, you know, the square of the face of the monitor had discolored actually kept the color and all the space around it and the cover was all bleached out from the light over all the years it had been sitting under his monitor so so there you go so that was some time ago <laughs> i think one of the things and i know you've been a long time nsca member and i think this is any organization in our field what you find is you have practitioners who say, oh, you know, you just need to be able to be a practitioner. And you have the researchers who say, oh, well, you just need to be a researcher. And what I think is interesting with how you've 
adapted and transitioned into your current career is you literally have to work with or deal with, depending on the day of the week, I would imagine, researchers who are world-renowned, practitioners who are world-renowned, both of which have egos. And if you could talk for a few minutes just about practitioners and researchers and how both of them are necessary to publish books like Human Kinetics or other publishers publish in our field, because, you know, Human Kinetics is one of the best, if not the best. They're probably the best known. There are other publishers, but it really is, especially today with the fact that you or I could write 150 or 200 pages between now and next Monday and literally self-publish it. How good it would be would be questionable. And what you have to do as a publisher is, and working working with in a publishing industry, is you have to balance the practitioner who says, well, this is the way we do it and we always do it. And the researcher who says, well, the research doesn't support this, but. Wow, that, there's like seven different answers to that paragraph of, of topics. That's, that's a podcast right there. It is, it is. I mean, one of the benefits of most books that are in strength training, conditioning, personal training and such is that they typically have both. They have um, oftentimes the first let's just say half of a book covers the scientific principles based by research. And the second half of the book um, is all applied uh, content that is used on a day-to-day basis working with uh, athlete clients. So most books have the one, two approach to them. And so that kind of allows the, the background of the contributors for an edited book to come from both those areas that you mentioned. Um, and, you know, there, Oftentimes, there's the the additional layer of being sure that the books, even if they are based upon research, when they are based upon uh, practical application, practical examples, is to be sure that they have enough breadth, enough and enough depth to those uh, perspectives, so that you're not just publishing something on a niche topic that only has one research study that was done in. Transylvania back in the in the 1800s. So, you know, trying to really be sure that there is strong research support, well accepted research support, and then the application of that research into the practical arena is not too niche. That does have broad enough application. The book has value um, for a practitioner, for a researcher, for a user, for a reader. And, and how, that how, type how of blend that, of stuff. How is that determined whether it has practical value, whether it's not a niche? I mean, well, there's two answers. One is a cheating answer. The cheating answer is the NSCA books are all externally reviewed. So we have a group of individuals who are specifically tasked to the, to check that as well as create consistency across NSCA titles um, for any set of guidelines and recommendations. For a non-NSCA book, certain ones, yes, they're likely externally reviewed also. Um, sometimes, though, some books are written in the way that the author is given the platform to give her his or her perspective on their own, their, their unique perspective on the topic. And then the marketing um, information, the cover, the, the design, the treatment is all made clear that it is this particular author's perspective. You know, HK's job is to vet the author at the acquisition stage. So there's a, there's enough um, depth to the platform, that person's platform, that the book would have a sales audience, a, a robust enough sales audience that the book can, can be profitable. Um, sometimes making that decision, though, can be tricky because Oftentimes, um, you find those individuals who are very specific in their knowledge base or are very known for their perspective um, in the research and or application arena. Um, They may not necessarily have um, enough of a breadth of uh, application or acceptance of their thoughts and perspectives. And that's not anti-validating them as a practitioner, but we also are a business and have to be sure that the books would have sufficient sales value from a business point of view. So some some great idea projects with wonderful authors 
aren't accepted because the author doesn't have enough of a platform. And I'm curious, we didn't really cover this. You mentioned you worked for the NSCA for quite a few years. How was, or what was the reason, not the reason, but uh, how did you find the human kinetics job? Because most of us, you know, we go through three or four or five different jobs in our, in our lives. And it's not at all unusual for many people to find they're out in entirely different jobs than what they got their degree for, but you're relatively mature in your career. I'm not going to insult you by asking you how old you are, but you've been, you've been around for a while because I'm looking right now. It wasn't intended at the second edition of the essentials of strength and conditioning on my bookshelf here. And you're still in the field. You know, you, you're at the point where I am also, where there are some people you probably, when you go back and look at some of those books or look at some of the early presenters at conferences you went to say, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. Yeah, interesting. That's true, especially that we find out doing that at a conference, right? That people you just all of a sudden don't see anymore. Um, well, I mean, I am. I feel very blessed that this is essentially my my third job, and all three jobs have been in the in the SNC related career um, field in the in the SNC dis discipline. So, um, I think part of it for me is training. Uh, training as an exercise training is so much part of me as a person that it's just completely natural that I would do it in my job, that I would be exposed and work with that content in my job. Um, everything that I do as an athlete myself um, and all across the years is just so ingrained in me as a person that talking shop with an author or editor or contributor or the NSCA staff or whatever is just, it's, it's just like talking about the weather. I mean, it's just one of those things that it's just a natural thing. And, and I've enjoyed um, continuing education uh, across the years as well. I, I, I learned from the content that is provided to HK for its books um, as, as well. It's not just, I'm, I'm not reading about widgets or, or uh, you know, text that I don't I don't understand. It's all very interesting. So I had the benefit there to to maintain knowledge. I think it's just simply because for me as a person, everything is so integrated that it would be weird to do something different. Yeah, I know. A lot of times you you hear if you uh, look on social media, you know, work life balance. And I think if you're in a career per se, I know you and I were chatting at the most recent NSCA conference. You said you've just started turning off your email when you go home. But if you're in a career, you may have multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if somebody said, who are you? You'd say, I'm in the movement field or I'm in the exercise science field or the strength and conditioning field. Whether you work for human kinetics or 15 years down the line, you end up teaching at, at a college or a junior college. That's who you are in your career. Yeah, I think that's, that's well put. Um, I mean, I think that most people that you and I know mutually um, would likely have the same conclusion when you drill it all down to one sentence. That's probably it, really. I know I gave you a little a little nugget of information that you were excited about when we talked at the NSCA conference when I first asked you. A, a previous guest on Moving to Live, Robert Linkle, was a yeah. you know, high-level track and field athlete in the hammer throw. And you're like, I didn't know that. I need to That's talk crazy, that. yeah. So I think this is an interesting thing. One of the things I didn't know about you is you are a very high level obstacle course athlete. What's an obstacle course athlete, first of all? And then second of all, how did you get into this? Because most people that you talk to, even if they're in this as a career, you say, well, I used to do this or I used to do that, but you still do this. I do. I do. It's, it's uh, quite exciting. My my uh since you since i can talk shop with you i believe that my parents uh genetically gifted me with 50.00% slow twitch fast twitch fiber composition so i tried to do sports that were i did powerlifting i did bodybuilding i did distance running i did triathloning uh road running uh and i was terrible at all of them i mean i, I mean i i completed them I remember my first college, college cross-country meet. The distance in cross-country in, in, in high school was two miles in Iowa. The distance for cross-country in, in Nebraska in college was five miles. And uh, the first meet, literally like the first half mile, 
I'm, I'm like way behind the last person. And I, I quickly morphed from a cross-country athlete as a freshman in college to a really, really great cheerleader for the rest of my team for the remainder of the season. So obstacle course racing uh, is a sport is relatively new um, in the United States. It probably began, oh, I'd say um, maybe 2010, 2011. Um, Spartan Race um, is probably the world's largest um, organization that um, has obstacle course racing events. There's been a lot of organizations across the past um, past 10 years that have come and go just because it's a very expensive business for a company to be able to do. But essentially, obstacle course racing is, is like combining the military obstacle courses that you think of stereotypically with doing trail running at the same time. So essentially, you go through um, a course that's typically on some sort of uh, outdoor park, forested, nature preserve, state park, whatever, whatever, sometimes on people's property or like an ATV park, off-road park, um, all sorts of venues like that. And there are obstacles that are set up anywhere from, uh, you know, 100 yards apart to a half a mile apart. And the distances range from three miles, you know, up to uh, 50, 50K, you know, 50K distance, 30, 35 miles. Obstacles are anywhere from 20 or so on the 5K distances up to 60 or 70 obstacles on the ultra distance. And uh, yeah, so you're just outside playing in the mud and uh, having to carry yourself over on and around things, lifting heavy things, um, doing kind of monkey bar rig type obstacles, rope based obstacles. And I got to tell you, got to tell you, Ben, there's there's a, there's something to be said about having that 50-50 composition because there's parts of that, the, the sport that require strength. There's parts of the sport that require endurance, muscular endurance, parts of the sport that require cardiovascular endurance. And I must just have enough of a good blend that it's just been such a rewarding experience. Finally, as, a, as an adult, and I started doing this, um, I think my first event was 2013, I believe. And I don't know, to be able to find something I can be competitive in at the age group level, not the men's elite level. The men's elite, they can do the course twice. I mean, they can run the six minutes per mile, including the obstacles on the trail, despite the challenge. So it's just pretty amazing. So to find a, a sport that I can do and be competitive in, it's just been such an incredible time for me. I know one of the things, my idea of the perfect day is to get out in the woods to bike or trail run. And I don't look at it as working it out. I look at it as playing or having fun and just to see your face. I mean, our audience is just going to get the audio. I'm thinking of uh, a friend of both of ours, Rick Howard, who's involved with long-term athletic development with the NSCA and Tony Marino. It's like, you know, as adults, we don't play enough. And I mean, too much, we work out, et cetera. And just to see the way you described that in the last three or four minutes, you're, you're an adult and you're, you're doing a competitive activity, but at the end of the day, as you said, you're playing in the mud. And I think if more people in our profession recognize that, Hey, you know, be serious in your career, but, but have fun playing too, whether, whether it's in the weight room, whether it's on the trails, whether it's in the mountains, whether it's whatever you're doing. It should be fun. And I'm just looking at you and you got a big grin on your face, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the most enjoyable things about it is the fact that because the sport is so um, varied, your training gets to be varied. So I remember when I first started doing this sport, I, I remember my very first plyometric session that I programmed for myself and I did myself. After all the years working with athletes and directing them to their doing their plyo workouts, here I'm doing one myself. It's like this is just this is the coolest thing ever. So you there's there's not enough time in the week to be able to give full attention to everything. So the challenge is to try to do really good programming. Basically, I, I devote two sessions per week to each different component of obstacle course race training. 
and uh, you know, kind of switching them up, purposely doing things in weird orders, purposely lifting things unevenly, and and uh, odd objects, and handling your body weight in different positions, and all sorts of things. So um, the variation is just what provides not only the enjoyment when you train, but also being able to see, wow, okay, like what, because you don't know what the events are going to be. I mean, you have an idea and some, like some of the obstacles are, are standard, but they're all, any venue you go to, even the same one year to year is always in a different part of the venue, always a different direction. No, no one uh, course is the same. And so you're just like, okay, you, you train and you get this arsenal of abilities and then you go to this event and, and you see how you see how you perform. Like when you get up to the top of the hill, you don't know what's there. All of a sudden you see something and you got to navigate it. And, and if you, uh, if you can't do it and uh, you do the penalty burpees and then you go on to the next one. So I'm curious, you ever think back and go, gosh, I wish this was around when I was 18, uh, or 19 or 20. <laughs> oh my gosh. I I'm not a ter- person to do the what if things, or I wish I would have things. I, I just, I just don't do that as a person, but I do think it would be very interesting to, have a uh, you know twenty eight year old physique and the twenty eight year old's recovery ability. That's the catch, um, and do this sport because it certainly would be uh, certainly would be interesting. I know I've got a, a longtime client who made the comment four or five years ago. He's in his early sixties. He goes this this thing that they say when you get older that it takes longer to recover. It's actually true. Absolutely. As a matter of fact. Um, you become very a lot more self-aware of your your status at any given moment. I use uh, Whoop as my athlete monitoring device, which is extraordinarily helpful. Between that and um, I've got four professionals that that I then am a client of theirs. So I think that's something that's important as practitioners that they they too everyone looks to have someone else work with you um, as you work with others yourself. And so those physical therapists, I got physical therapists, a sports psychologist, a nutritionist, um, and then uh, kind of a person that does the sport also. And kind of, we kind of of bounce off training programming ideas, but it's just interesting that the the more that, um, well, actually, let me, let me take back what I said. I think you asked about the comparison to, to your younger self, I suppose. I think, I think I wouldn't have the perspective that I have now had I done this sport when I was younger, because the perspective now of being so comprehensive with your training, like it's 24 seven thing. It's not just the hour that you're in the, that you're in the gym. Right. So it's just that awareness of self and how nutrition and recovery and, and uh, everything, sports psychology or self-talk, everything, how, how it all plays in into each, each other. And I think, now, as a person in my career, as a 55-year-old man, um, I think that uh, I, I would have a much better perspective now than what if I would have done this when I was younger. I've made the joke before to my dad numerous times that most people spend more time looking for an auto mechanic than they do taking care of their health. And I think it's interesting you're describing these professionals that you have. I think the two advantages they have is, first of all, it gives you perspective. It takes the emotion out of it so they can look at you and say, Roger, that's a stupid idea. Don't do that. Or Roger, you're not 25 anymore. You can't do those two races uh, back-to-back weekends because of the intensity or the elevation. And the second thing, whether it's intentional or not, by doing this activity, because so many people, when they get to be 30, 40, 50, it's like, well, I'm too old to do that. And I think you're seeing, as you said, recovery takes longer. Training may have to be more intelligent. You can't do the stupid things you did when you were 25 or the things that seemed smart when you were 25, but you're actually making an investment on not only your lifespan or how long you can do the things you want to do, but also your quality of life. Because I'm sure if you're like me, you get together with old friends that maybe you've known for 30 years and it makes you sad because you see them not able to do the things. You remember them as the 18 year old or the 22 year old, and you may be 55 now, but probably most of the things you did then you can still do now if you have enough time to recover afterwards. 
Yeah, it's, that's interesting. I think that becomes very apparent at the NSCA conferences or other conferences that you go to because you do see people, you have a glimpse once a year, right, of them. And, um, you know, there's the next older generation of professionals in our profession um, are noticeably less, I guess, vibrant and, and such themselves. You kind of worry about them as, as you know, you, you gain friends over the years. People who are colleagues are, are now friends years later. So you get, you know, you're concerned for them as, and, and their health and such. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's probably going to be the biggest challenge for me as a person as I get older to be able to adjust to not being able to do what you just described. Um, Cause I know that eventually, um, eventually, eventually it's probably going to happen. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the ability to be able to keep the perspective and being able to do what you can um, and just, like one of the one of the, the tag phrases of of your program is 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 the simply the word move or movement, and looking at training as movement and not always just training um, is one way to kind of help adjust the perspective um, that has application to even a younger person post injury, for example. Uh, but I think you know those sorts of broadening of of what a person feels is a way to still maintain health is a healthy adjustment as a person gets older. I think that's very well put along with what uh, my eye surgeon told me a few years ago. He said, look, this is the research on your eye condition. He said, however, remember everybody's an N of one. So you may be slightly different. So I like to tell people when, when they think, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get older. You could be the first 85 year old, you know, obstacle course athlete because you said, well, I enjoy training. I'm doing this not because I get the t-shirt or the medal, which is obviously a motivator, but because boy, there's nothing better than plopping my face and my body in, into a big old mud puddle. You know, it reminds me of when I'm five or six years old, my parents would get out of the house and go play in the mud. <laughs> as a matter of fact, there is a gentleman, uh, Paul Chance is his name. Uh, I believe that he is 78 and he has done over 130 Spartan races and he didn't start until uh, 2014. So, and he's 78 now, so you can do the math. He was in his sixties and, uh, or I may, maybe just turned 70 for that matter. And the guy's famous. He's a celebrity. And uh, he's at, at so many races every year, and he gets called out in the starting corral every time from the MC. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like it's probably not to the extent that triathlon is. I've had some clients who have done age group nationals for triathlon, and and I had a chance one time to go to age group nationals for triathlon, and it's just amazing. The eighty to eighty nine um, year old year old age group for triathlon was full of people. And I mean, it's triathlon as a sport and really is, is a good sport across the generation simply because the training can be so varied. You don't have to run, run, run all the time. And so triathlon as a sport is, is, has mature athletes. And I think obstacle course racing over time will as well. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great comparison. I remember when I was very active in triathlons, when I first started out, my goal was to finish within one or two minutes in Olympic distance triathlon of a, a Navy guy who was in his fifties. And then when I was a little farther along, I used to swim when I lived in Lexington, Kentucky with a longtime all-American triathlon, Susan Bradley Cox, who was in her sixties then. And she would consistently in her sixties when I was a 25 or 26 year old whippersnapper swim significantly faster than me. And I quickly <laughs> realized that Age really didn't have that much to do with a sport such as swimming. It was much more technique, and her technique was significantly better than mine was ever going to be. Yeah, it's, it was probably one of the most interesting experiences when I was at uh, age group nationals. Is you probably recall this often for yourself, that you, but but uh, you had to have a, a decal on your back of your left leg that had your age. And so when I was in, waiting for my client to come back around each time, I would like play this little game of people going by me trying to guess their age. I was always wrong by a lot. I mean, someone walked by and you think, oh, that person looks like they're, you know, maybe they're in their 50s or so, 70 something. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. Amazing thing.
We've had the good fortune to be talking with Roger Earl. His professional career is acquisitions editor of Human Kinetics. But if you happen to be at a conference and see him, go up, talk him up, ask him about his latest obstacle course event, because I'm a little bit embarrassed. I've probably said hello to you and had conferences or talks with you at conferences, numerous emails, a couple of phone conversations over the years with projects you've involved me with. And I didn't learn until you filled out the questionnaire that you were a obstacle course athlete. So <laughs> I apologize. You are the uh, minority in the NSCA involved in endurance related activities. And I appreciate that because it is strength and conditioning. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. I, uh, I find myself easily getting down the road of describing all things training with someone who, if, if they express even a little bit of interest, I'm already off to give them a long story about things. So, Roger, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I think uh, your story and also the fact that as you are an aging athlete, you found a new activity that really make, makes you feel young again is, is something that's inspirational to everybody. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guests, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH emphasizes movement in the Pittsburgh area and beyond with video podcasts, movement ideas, and interviews with people in the Pittsburgh area who understand movement is part of what makes life complete. Until next time, keep on moving.